Part One, Chapter Six of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche, translated by Thomas Common. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Pale Criminal. Ye do not mean to slay, ye judges and sacrificers, until the animal hath bowed its head. Lo, the pale criminal hath bowed his head. Out of his eye speaketh the great contempt. Mine ego is something which is to be surpassed. Mine ego is to me the great contempt of man. So speaketh it out of that eye. When he judged himself, that was his supreme moment. Let not the exalted one relapse again into his lowest state. There is no salvation for him who thus suffereth from himself, unless it be speedy death. Your slaying, ye judges, shall be pity and not revenge. And in that ye slay, see to it that ye yourselves justify life. It is not enough that ye should reconcile with him whom ye slay. Let your sorrow be love to the superman. Thus will ye justify your own survival. Enemy, shall ye say, but not villain. Invalid, shall ye say, but not wretch. Fool, shall ye say, but not sinner. And thou, red judge, if thou wouldst say audibly all thou hast done in thought, then would every one cry, Away with the nastiness and the virulent reptile! But one thing is the thought, another thing is the deed, and another thing is the idea of the deed. The wheel of causality doth not roll between them. An idea made this pale man pale. Adequate was he for his deed when he did it, but the idea of it he could not endure when it was done. Evermore did he now see himself as the doer of one deed. Madness, I call this. The exception reversed itself to the rule in him. The streak of chalk bewitcheth the hen. The stroke he struck bewitched his weak reason. Madness after the deed, I call this. Hearken ye, judges. There is another madness besides, and it is before the deed. Ha! Ye have not gone deep enough into this soul. Thus speaketh the red judge. Why did this criminal commit murder? He meant to rob. I tell you, however, that his soul wanted blood, not booty. He thirsted for the happiness of the knife. But his weak reason understood not this madness, and it persuaded him. What matter about blood, it said. Wishest thou not at least to make booty thereby, or take revenge? And he hearkened unto his weak reason. Like lead lay its words upon him. Thereupon he robbed when he murdered. He did not mean to be ashamed of his madness. And now once more lieth the lead of his guilt upon him. And once more in his weak reason, so benumbed, so paralyzed, and so dull. Could he only shake his head, then would his burden roll off. But who shaketh that head? What is this man? A mass of diseases that reach out into the world through the spirit, 
There they want to get their prey. What is this man? A coil of wild serpents that are seldom at peace among themselves. So they go forth apart and seek prey in the world. Look at that poor body. What it suffered and craved. The poor soul interpreted to itself. It interpreted it as murderous desire, an eagerness for the happiness of the knife. Him who now turneth sick, the evil overtaketh which is now the evil. He seeketh to cause pain with that which causeth him pain. But there have been other ages, and another evil and good. Once was doubt evil, and the will to self. Then the invalid became a heretic or sorcerer. As heretic or sorcerer he suffered and sought to cause suffering. But this will not enter your ears. It hurteth your good people, ye tell me. But what doth it matter to me about your good people? Many things in your good people cause me disgust, and verily not their evil. I would that they had a madness by which they succumbed like this pale criminal. Verily, I would that their madness were called truth, or fidelity, or justice. But they have their virtue in order to live long, and in wretched self-complacency. I am a-railing alongside the torrent. Whoever is able to grasp me may grasp me. You are crutch, however. I am not. Thus spake Zarathustra. End of Part 1, Chapter 6 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Part 1, Chapter 7 of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche Translated by Thomas Common This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading and Writing Of all that is written, I love only what a person hath written with his blood. Write with blood, and thou wilt find that blood is spirit. It is no easy task to understand unfamiliar blood. I hate the reading idlers. He who knoweth the reader doeth nothing more for the reader. Another century of readers, and the spirit itself will stink. Everyone being allowed to learn to read ruineth in the long run not only writing, but also thinking. Once spirit was God, then it became man, and now it even becometh populous. He that writeth in blood and proverbs doth not want to be read but learnt by heart. In the mountains the shortest way is from peak to peak, but for that route thou must have long legs. Proverbs should be peaks, and those spoken to should be big and tall. The atmosphere rare and pure, danger near and the spirit full of a joyful wickedness. Thus are things well matched. I want to have goblins about me, for I am courageous. The courage which scareth away ghosts createth for itself goblins. It wanteth to laugh. I no longer feel in common with you. The very cloud which I see beneath me 
the blackness and heaviness at which I laugh. That is your thundercloud. Ye look aloft when ye long for exaltation, and I look downward, because I am exalted. Who among you can at the same time laugh and be exalted? He who climbeth on the highest mountains laugheth at all tragic plays and tragic realities. Courageous, unconcerned, scornful, coercive. So wisdom wisheth us. She is a woman, and ever loveth only a warrior. Ye tell me, life is hard to bear. But for what purpose should ye have your pride in the morning and your resignation in the evening? Life is hard to bear. But do not affect to be so delicate. We are all of us fine sumpter asses and assesses. What have we in common with the rosebud which trembleth because a drop of dew hath formed upon it? It is true we love life, not because we are wont to live, but because we are wont to love. There is always some madness in love, but there is always also some method in madness. And to me also, who appreciate life, the butterflies and soap-bubbles, and whatever is like them amongst us, seem most to enjoy happiness. To see these light, foolish, pretty, lively little sprites flit about, that moveth Zarathustra to tears and songs. I should only believe in a god that would know how to dance. And when I saw my devil, I found him serious, thorough, profound, solemn. He was the spirit of gravity. Through him all things fall. Not by wrath, but by laughter do we slay. Come, let us slay the spirit of gravity. I learned to walk, since then I have let myself run. I learned to fly, since then I do not need pushing in order to move from a spot. Now am I light, now do I fly. Now do I see myself under myself. Now there danceth a god in me. Thus spake Zarathustra. End of Part 1, Chapter 7 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Part 1, Chapter 8 of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche Translated by Thomas Common This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. THE TREE ON THE HILL Zarathustra's eye had perceived that a certain youth avoided him, and as he walked alone one evening under the hills surrounding the town called the Pied Cow, behold, there found he the youth sitting leaning against a tree and gazing with wearied look into the valley. Zarathustra thereupon laid hold of the tree beside which the youth sat, and spake thus, "'If I wish to shake this tree with my hands,' I should not be able to do so. But the wind, which we see not, troubleth and bendeth it as it listeth. We are sorest bent and troubled by invisible hands. Thereupon the youth arose disconcerted and said, I hear Zarathustra, and just now I was thinking of him. Zarathustra answered, Why art thou frightened on that account? 
but it is the same with man as with the tree. The more he seeketh to rise into the height and light, the more vigorously do his roots struggle earthward, downward, into the dark and deep, into the evil. Yea, into the evil, cried the youth. How is it possible that thou hast discovered my soul? Zarathustra smiled and said, Many a soul one will never discover, unless one first invent it. Yea, into the evil, cried the youth once more. Thou saidst the truth, Zarathustra. I trust myself no longer since I sought to rise into the height, and nobody trusteth me any longer. How doth that happen? I change too quickly. My to-day refuteth my yesterday. I often overleap the steps when I clamber, for so doing none of the steps pardon me. When aloft, I find myself always alone. No one speaketh unto me. The frost of solitude maketh me tremble. What do I seek on the height? My contempt and my longing increase together. The higher I clamber, the more do I despise him who clambereth. What doth he seek on the height? How ashamed I am of my clambering and stumbling! How I mock at my violent panting! How I hate him who flieth! How tired I am on the height! Here the youth was silent, and Zarathustra contemplated the tree beside which they stood and spake thus. This tree standeth lonely here on the hills. It hath grown up high above man and beast. And if it wanted to speak, it would have none who could understand it, so high hath it grown. Now it waiteth and waiteth. For what doth it wait? It dwelleth too close to the seat of the clouds. It waiteth, perhaps, for the first lightning. When Zarathustra had said this, the youth called out with violent gesture, Yea, Zarathustra, thou speakest the truth. My destruction I longed for, when I desired to be on the height, and thou art the lightning for which I waited. Lo, what have I been since thou hast appeared amongst us? It is mine envy of thee that hath destroyed me. Thus spake the youth and wept bitterly. Zarathustra, however, put his arm about him and led the youth away with him. And when they had walked a while together, Zarathustra began to speak thus. It rendeth my heart. Better than thy words express it. Thine eyes tell me all thy danger. As yet thou art not free. Thou still seekest freedom. Too unslept hath thy seeking made thee, and too wakeful. On the open height wouldst thou be, for the stars thirsteth thy soul. But thy bad impulses also thirst for freedom. Thy wild dogs want liberty. They bark for joy in their cellar when thy spirit endeavoureth to open all prison doors. Still art thou a prisoner, it seemeth to me who deviseth liberty for himself. Huh! Sharp becometh the soul of such prisoners, but also deceitful and wicked. To purify himself it is still necessary for the freedom of the spirit. Much of the prison and the mold still remaineth in him, 
pure hath his eyes still to become. Yea, I know thy danger, but by my love and hope I conjure thee, cast not thy love and hope away. Noble thou feelest thyself still, and noble others also feel thee still. Though they bear thee a grudge and cast evil looks, know this, that to everybody a noble one standeth in the way. Also to the good a noble one standeth in the way, and even when they call him a good man they want thereby to put him aside. The new would the noble man create, and a new virtue. The old wanteth the good man, and that the old should be conserved. But it is not the danger of the noble man to turn a good man, but lest he should become a blusterer, a scoffer, or a destroyer. Ah, I have known noble ones who lost their highest hope, and then they disparaged all high hopes. Then lived they shamelessly in temporary pleasures, and beyond the day had hardly an aim. Spirit is also voluptuousness, said they. Then broke the wings of their spirit, and now it creepeth about, and defileth where it gnaweth. Once they thought of becoming heroes, but sensualists are they now. A trouble and a terror is the hero to them, but by my love and hope I conjure thee. Cast not away the hero in thy soul. Maintain wholly thy highest hope. Thus spake Zarathustra. End of Part 1, Chapter 8 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Part 1, Chapter 9 of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche Translated by Thomas Common This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Preachers of Death There are preachers of death and the earth is full of those to whom desistance from life must be preached. Full is the earth of the superfluous. Marred is life by the many too many. May they be decoyed out of this life by the life eternal. The yellow ones, so are called the preachers of death, or the black ones. But I will show them unto you in other colors besides. There are the terrible ones who carry about in themselves the beast of prey, and have no choice except lusts or self-laceration. And even their lusts are self-laceration. They have not yet become men, those terrible ones. May they preach desistance from life and pass away themselves. There are the spiritually consumptive ones. Hardly are they born when they begin to die and long for doctrines of lassitude and renunciation. They would fain be dead, and we should approve of their wish. Let us beware of awakening those dead ones, and of damaging those living coffins. They meet an invalid or an old man, or a corpse, and immediately they say, Life is refuted. But they only are refuted and their eye which seeth only one aspect of existence. Shrouded in thick melancholy and eager for the little casualties that bring death. 
Thus do they wait and clench their teeth. Or else they grasp at sweetmeats and mock at their childishness thereby. They cling to their straw of life and mock at their still clinging to it. Their wisdom speaketh thus. A fool he who remaineth alive, but so far are we fools, and that is the foolishest thing in life. Life is only suffering, so say others, and lie not. Then see to it that ye cease. See to it that the life ceaseth which is only suffering. And let this be the teaching of your virtue. Thou shalt slay thyself. Thou shalt steal away from thyself. Lust is sin, so say some who preach death. Let us go apart and beget no children. Giving birth is troublesome, say others. Why still give birth? One beareth only the unfortunate, and they also are preachers of death. Pity is necessary, so saith a third party. Take what I have, take what I am, so much less doth life bind me. Were they consistently pitiful, then would they make their neighbors sick of life. To be wicked, that would be their true goodness. But they want to be rid of life. What care they if they bind others still faster with their chains and gifts? And ye also, to whom life is rough labor and disquiet, are ye not very tired of life? Are ye not very ripe for the sermon of death? All ye to whom rough labor is dear, and the rapid new and strange, ye put up with yourselves badly. Your diligence is flight and the will to self-forgetfulness. If ye believed more in life, then would ye devote yourselves less to the momentary. But for waiting, ye have not enough of capacity in you, nor even for idling. Everywhere resoundeth the voice of those who preach death, and the earth is full of those to whom death hath to be preached, or life eternal, it is all the same to me, if only they pass away quickly. Thus spake Zarathustra. Notes by Anthony M. Ludovici This is an analysis of the psychology of all those who have the evil eye and are pessimists by virtue of their constitutions. End of Part 1, Chapter 9 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Part 1, Chapter 10 of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche, translated by Thomas Common. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. War and Warriors By our best enemies, we do not want to be spared, nor by those either whom we love from the very heart. So let me tell you the truth. My brethren in war, I love you from the very heart. I am, and was ever, your counterpart, and I am also your best enemy. So let me tell you the truth. I know the hatred and envy of your hearts. Ye are not great enough not to know of hatred and envy. Then be great enough not to be ashamed of them. And if ye cannot be saints of knowledge, then I pray you, 
be at least its warriors. They are the companions and forerunners of such saintship. I see many soldiers. Could I but see many warriors? Uniform, one calleth what they wear. May it not be uniform what they therewith hide. Ye shall be those whose eyes ever seek for an enemy, for your enemy. And with some of you there is hatred at first sight. Your enemy shall ye seek, your war shall ye wage, and for the sake of your thoughts. And if your thoughts succumb, your uprightness shall still shout triumph thereby. Ye shall love peace as a means to new wars, and the short peace more than the long. You I advise not to work, but to fight. You I advise not to peace, but to victory. Let your work be a fight, let your peace be a victory. One can only be silent and sit peacefully when one hath arrow and bow. Otherwise, one prateth and quarreleth. Let your peace be a victory. Ye say it is the good cause which halloweth even war. I say unto you, it is the good war which halloweth every cause. War and courage have done more great things than charity. Not your sympathy, but your bravery hath hitherto saved the victims. What is good? ye ask. To be brave is good. Let the little girls say, To be good is what is pretty, and at the same time touching. They call you heartless, but your heart is true, and I love the bashfulness of your good will. Ye are ashamed of your flow, and others are ashamed of their ebb. Ye are ugly? Well, then, my brethren, take the sublime about you, the mantle of the ugly. And when your soul becometh great, then doth it become haughty, and in your sublimity there is wickedness. I know you. In wickedness the haughty man and the weakling meet, but they misunderstand one another. I know you. Ye shall only have enemies to be hated, but not enemies to be despised. Ye must be proud of your enemies, then the successes of your enemies are also your successes. Resistance, that is the distinction of the slave. Let your distinction be obedience. Let your commanding itself be obeying. To the good warrior soundeth thou shalt pleasanter than I will, and all that is dear unto you ye shall first have it commanded unto you. Let your love to life be love to your highest hope, and let your highest hope be the highest thought of life. Your highest thought, however, ye shall have it commanded unto you by me. And it is this. Man is something that is to be surpassed. So live your life of obedience and of war. What matter about long life? What warrior wisheth to be spared? I spare you not. I love you from my very heart, my brethren in war. Thus spake Zarathustra. End of part one, chapter ten. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia.
Part One, Chapter Eleven of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche, translated by Thomas Common. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The New Idol. Somewhere, there are still peoples and herds, but not with us, my brethren. Here, there are states. A state? What is that? Well, open now your ears unto me, for now I will say unto you my word concerning the death of peoples. A state is called the coldest of all cold monsters. Coldly lieth it also, and this lie creepeth from its mouth. I, the state, am the people. It is a lie. Creators were they who created people, and hung a faith and a love over them. Thus they served life. Destroyers are they who lay snares for many and call it the state. They hang a sword and a hundred cravings over them. Where there is still a people, there the state is not understood. But hated as the evil eye, and as sin against laws and customs, this sign I give unto you, every people speaketh its language of good and evil. This its neighbor understandeth not. Its language hath it devised for itself in laws and customs. But the state lieth in all languages of good and evil. And whatever it saith, it lieth. And whatever it hath, it hath stolen. False is everything in it. With stolen teeth it biteth the biting one. False are even its bowels. Confusion of language of good and evil, this sign I give unto you as the sign of this state. Verily, the will to death indicateth this sign. Verily, it beckoneth unto the preachers of death. Many too many are born, for the superfluous ones was the state devised. See just how it enticeth them to it, the many too many, how it swalloweth and cheweth and recheweth them. On earth there is nothing greater than I. It is I who am the regulating finger of God, thus roareth the monster. And not only the long-eared and short-sighted fall upon their knees. Ha! Even in your ears, ye great souls, it whispereth its gloomy lies. Ha! It findeth out the rich hearts which willingly lavish themselves. Yea, it findeth you out too, ye conquerors of the old God. Weary ye become of the conflict, and now your weariness serveth the new idol. Heroes and honorable ones, it would fain set up around it the new idol. Gladly it basketh in the sunshine of good consciences, the cold monster. Everything will it give you if ye worship it, the new idol. Thus it purchaseth the luster of your virtue, and the glance of your proud eyes. It seeketh to allure by means of you the many too many. Yea, a hellish artifice hath there been devised, a death-horse jingling with the trappings of divine honors. Yea, a dying for many hath there been devised, which glorifieth itself as life. Verily, 
a hearty service unto all preachers of death. The state, I call it, where all are poison drinkers, the good and the bad. The state, where all lose themselves, the good and the bad. The state, where the slow suicide of all is called life. Just see these superfluous ones. They steal the works of the inventors and the treasures of the wise. Culture they call their theft, and everything becometh sickness and trouble unto them. Just see these superfluous ones. Sick are they always. They vomit their bile and call it a newspaper. They devour one another and cannot even digest themselves. Just see these superfluous ones. Wealth they acquire and become poorer thereby. Power they seek for, and above all the lever of power, much money. These impotent ones. See them clamber, these nimble apes. They clamber over one another and thus scuffle into the mud and the abyss. Toward the throne they all strive. It is their madness. As if happiness sat on the throne, oft times sitteth filth on the throne, and oft times also the throne on filth. Madmen they all seem to me, and clambering apes, and too eager. Badly smelleth their idol to me, the cold monster. Badly they all smell to me, these idolaters. My brethren, will ye suffocate in the fumes of their maws and appetites? Better break the windows and jump into the open air. Do go out of the way of the bad odor. Withdraw from the idolatry of the superfluous. Do go out of the way of the bad odor. Withdraw from the steam of these human sacrifices. Open still remaineth the earth for great souls. Empty are still many sights for lone ones and twain ones, around which floateth the odor of tranquil seas. Open still remaineth a free life for great souls. Verily, he who possesseth little is so much the less possessed. Blessed be moderate poverty. There, where the state seetheth, there only commenceth the man who is not superfluous. There commenceth the song of the necessary ones, the single and irreplaceable melody. There, where the state ceaseth. Pray, look thither, my brethren. Do ye not see it? The rainbow and the bridges of the superman. Thus spake Zarathustra. End of part one, chapter eleven. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Part one, chapter twelve of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche. Translated by Thomas Common. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Flies in the Marketplace. Flee, my friend, into thy solitude. I see thee deafened with the noise of the great men, and stung all over with the stings of the little ones. Admirably do forest and rock know how to be silent with thee. Resemble again the tree which thou lovest, the broad-branched one. Silently and attentively it overhangeth the sea. 
where solitude endeth, there beginneth the market-place, and where the market-place beginneth, there beginneth also the noise of the great actors, and the buzzing of the poison flies. In the world even the best things are worthless without those who represent them. Those representers the people call great men. Little do the people understand what is great. That is to say, the creating agency. But they have a taste for all representers and actors of great things. Around the devisers of new values revolveth the world. Invisibly it revolveth. But around the actors resolve the people and the glory. Such is the course of things. Spirit hath the actor, but little conscience of the spirit. He believeth always in that wherewith he maketh believe most strongly, in himself. Tomorrow he hath a new belief, and the day after one still newer. Sharp perceptions hath he, like the people, and changeable humors. To upset, that meaneth with him to prove, to drive mad, that meaneth with him to convince, and blood is counted by him as the best of all arguments. A truth which only glideth into fine ears, he calleth falsehood and trumpery. Verily, he believeth only in gods that make a great noise in the world. Full of clattering buffoons is the marketplace, and the people glory in their great men. These are for them the masters of the hour. But the hour presseth them, so they press thee, and also from thee they want yea or nay. Alas! Thou wouldst set thy chair betwixt for and against? On account of those absolute and impatient ones, be not jealous, thou lover of truth. Never yet did truth cling to the arm of an absolute one. On account of those abrupt ones, return into thy security. Only in the marketplace is one assailed by yea or nay, Slow is the experience of all deep fountains. Long have they to wait until they know what hath fallen into their depths. Away from the marketplace, and from fame taketh place all that is great. Away from the marketplace, and from fame have ever dwelt the devisers of new values. Flee, my friend, into thy solitude. I see thee stung all over by the poisonous flies. Flee thither where a rough, strong breeze bloweth. Flee into thy solitude. Thou hast lived too closely to the small and the pitiable. Flee from their invisible vengeance. Towards thee they have nothing but vengeance. Raise no longer an arm against them. Innumerable are they, and it is not thy lot to be a fly-flap. Innumerable are the small and pitiable ones, and of many a proud structure. Raindrops and weeds have been the ruin. Thou art not stone, 
but already hast thou become hollow by the numerous drops. Thou wilt ye break and burst by the numerous drops. Exhausted I see thee by poisonous flies. Bleeding I see thee and torn at a hundred spots, and thy pride will not even upbraid. Blood they would have from thee in all innocence, blood their bloodless souls crave for, and they sting, therefore, in all innocence. But thou, profound one, thou sufferest too profoundly even from small wounds, and ere thou hadst recovered, the same poison worm crawled over thy hand. Too proud art thou to kill these sweet tooths, but take care, lest it be thy fate to suffer all their poisonous injustice. They buzz around thee also with their praise. Obtrusiveness is their praise. They want to be close to thy skin and thy blood. They flatter thee as one flattereth a god or devil. They whimper before thee as before a god or devil. What doth it come to? Flatterers are they, and whimperers, and nothing more. Often also do they show themselves to thee as amiable ones, but that hath ever been the prudence of the cowardly. Yea, the cowardly are wise. They think much about thee with their circumscribed souls. Thou art always suspected by them. Whatever is much thought about is at last thought suspicious. They punish thee for all thy virtues. They pardon thee in their inmost hearts only for thine errors. Because thou art gentle and of upright character, thou sayest, Blameless are they for their small existence. But their circumscribed souls think, Blameable is all great existence. Even when thou art gentle toward them, they still feel themselves despised by thee, and they repay thy beneficence with secret maleficence. Thy silent pride is always counter to their taste. They rejoice if once thou be humble enough to be frivolous. What we recognize in a man, we also irritate in him. Therefore, be on your guard against the small ones. In thy presence they feel themselves small, and their baseness gleameth and gloweth against thee in invisible vengeance. Sawest thou not how often they became dumb when thou approachest them, and how their energy left them like the smoke of an extinguishing fire? Yea, my friend, the bad conscience art thou of thy neighbors, for they are unworthy of thee. Therefore they hate thee, and would fain suck thy blood. Thy neighbors will always be poisonous flies. What is great in thee? That itself must make them more poisonous and always more fly-like. Flee, my friend, into thy solitude. And thither, 
where a rough, strong breeze bloweth. It is not thy lot to be a fly-flap. Thus spake Zarathustra. End of Part 1, Chapter 12 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Part 1, Chapter 13 of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche Translated by Thomas Common This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chastity I love the forest. It is bad to live in cities. There, there are too many of the lustful. Is it not better to fall into the hands of a murderer than into the dreams of a lustful woman? And just look at these men. Their eyes saith it. They know nothing better on earth than to lie with a woman. Filth is at the bottom of their souls, and alas, if their filth hath still spirit in it, would that ye were perfect, at least as animals. But to animals belongeth innocence. Do I counsel you to slay your instincts? I counsel you to innocence in your instincts. Do I counsel you to chastity? Chastity is a virtue with some, but with many almost a vice. These are continent, to be sure. But doggish lust looketh envious out of all that they do. Even into the heights of their virtue and into their cold spirit doth this creature follow them with its discord. And how nicely can doggish lust beg for a piece of spirit when a piece of flesh is denied it. Ye love tragedies and all that breaketh the heart. But I am distrustful of your doggish lust. Ye have two cruel eyes, and ye look wantonly toward the sufferers. Hath not your lust just disguised itself, and taken the name of fellow-suffering? And also, this parable give I unto you. Not a few who meant to cast out their devil, went thereby into the swine themselves. To whom chastity is difficult, it is to be dissuaded, lest it become the road to hell, to filth and lust of soul. Do I speak of filthy things? That is not the worst thing for me to do. Not when the truth is filthy, but when it is shallow doth the discerning one go unwillingly into its waters. Verily, there are chaste ones from their very nature. They are gentler of heart, and laugh better and oftener than you. They laugh also at chastity, and ask, What is chastity? Is chastity not folly? But the folly came unto us, and not we unto it. We offered that guest harbor and heart. Now it dwelleth with us. Let it stay as long as it will. Thus spake Zarathustra. End of Part 1, Chapter 13 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Part 1, Chapter 14 of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche Translated by Thomas Common 
This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. THE FRIEND One is always too many about me, thinketh the anchorite. Always once one, that maketh two in the long run. I and me are always too earnestly in conversation. How could it be endured if there were not a friend? The friend of the anchorite is always the third one. The third one is the cork which preventeth the conversation of the two sinking into the depth. Ah, there are too many depths for all anchorites. Therefore do they long so much for a friend and for his elevation. Our faith in others betrayeth wherein we would fain have faith in ourselves. Our longing for a friend is our betrayer. And often with our love we want merely to overleap envy. And often we attack and make ourselves enemies to conceal that we are vulnerable. Be at last mine enemy, thus speaketh the true reverence, which doth not venture to solicit friendship. If one would have a friend, then must one also be willing to wage war for him. And in order to wage war, one must be capable of being an enemy. One ought still to honor the enemy in one's friend. Canst thou go nigh unto thy friend, and not go over him? In one's friend one shall have one's best enemy. Thou shalt be closest unto him with thy heart when thou withstandest him. Thou wouldst wear no raiment before thy friend. It is in honor of thy friend that thou showest thyself to him as thou art. But he wisheth thee to the devil on that account. He who maketh no secret of himself shocketh. So much reason have ye to fear nakedness. Ay, if ye were gods, ye could then be ashamed of clothing. Thou canst not adorn thyself fine enough for thy friend, for thou shalt be unto him an arrow, and a longing for the superman. Sawest thou ever thy friend asleep, then know how he looketh? What is usually the countenance of thy friend? It is thine own countenance, in a coarse and imperfect mirror. Sawest thou ever thy friend asleep? Wert thou not dismayed at thy friend looking so? O oh, my friend, man is something that hath to be surpassed. In divining and keeping silence shall the friend be a master. Not everything must thou wish to see. Thy dream shall disclose unto thee what thy friend doeth when awake. Let thy pity be a divining, to know first if thy friend wanteth pity. Perhaps he loveth in thee the unmoved eye and the look of eternity. Let thy pity for thy friend be hid under a hard shell. Thou shalt bite out a tooth upon it. Thus will it have delicacy and sweetness. Art thou pure air and solitude, and bread and medicine to thy friend? Many a one cannot loosen his own fetters, but is nevertheless his friend's emancipator. Art thou a slave? 
then thou canst not be a friend. Art thou a tyrant, then thou canst not have friends. Far too long hath there been a slave and a tyrant concealed in woman. On that account, woman is not yet capable of friendship. She knoweth only love. In woman's love there is injustice, and blindness to all she doth not love. And even in woman's conscious love, there is still always surprise and lightning and night, along with the light. As yet woman is not capable of friendship. Women are still cats and birds, or at the best cows. As yet woman is not capable of friendship. But tell me, ye men, who of you are capable of friendship? Oh, your poverty, ye men, and your sordidness of soul. As much as ye give to your friend, will I give even to my foe, and will not have become poorer thereby. There is comradeship. May there be friendship. Thus spake Zarathustra. End of part one, chapter fourteen. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Part one, chapter fifteen of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche. Translated by Thomas Common. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Thousand and One Goals. Many lands saw Zarathustra, and many peoples. Thus he discovered the good and bad of many peoples. No greater power did Zarathustra find on earth than good and bad. No people could live without first valuing. If a people will maintain itself, however, it must not value as its neighbor valueth. Much that passed for good with one people was regarded with scorn and contempt by another. Thus I found it. Much found I here called bad, which was there decked with purple honors. Never did the one neighbor understand the other. Ever did his soul marvel at his neighbor's delusion and wickedness. A table of excellencies hangeth over every people. Lo! It is the table of their triumphs. Lo, it is the voice of their will to power. It is laudable what they think hard. What is indispensable and hard they call good. And what relieveth in the direst distress, the unique and hardest of all, they extol as holy. Whatever maketh them rule and conquer and shine, to the dismay and envy of their neighbors, they regard as the high and foremost thing, the test and the meaning of all else. Verily, my brother, if thou knewest but a people's need, its lands, its sky, and its neighbor, then wouldst thou divine the law of its surmountings, and why it climbeth up that ladder to its hope. Always shall thou be the foremost and prominent above others. No one shall thy jealous soul love except a friend." That made the soul of a Greek thrill. Thereby went he his way to greatness. To speak truth, and be skillful with bow and arrow. So seemed it alike pleasing and hard to the people from whom cometh my name, the name which is alike pleasing and hard to me. 
to honor father and mother, and from the root of the soul to do their will. This table of surmounting hung another people over them, and became powerful and permanent thereby. To have fidelity, and for the sake of fidelity to risk honor and blood even in evil and dangerous courses. Teaching itself so, another people mastered itself, and thus mastering itself became pregnant and heavy with great hopes. Verily, men have given unto themselves all their good and bad. Verily, they took it not, they found it not, it came not unto them as a voice from heaven. Values did man only assign to things in order to maintain himself. He created only the significance of things, a human significance. Therefore calleth he himself man, that is, the valuator. Valuing is creating, here it ye creating ones. Valuation itself is the treasure and jewel of the valued things. Through valuation only is their value, and without valuation the nut of existence would be hollow. Hear it, ye creating ones, change of values, that is, change of the creating ones, always doth he destroy who hath to be a creator. Creating ones were first of all peoples, and only in late times individuals. Verily. The individual himself is still the latest creation. Peoples once hung over them tables of the good. Love, which would rule, and love, which would obey, created for themselves such tables. Older is the pleasure in the herd than the pleasure in the ego. And as long as the good conscience is for the herd, the bad conscience only saith ego. Verily, the crafty ego, the loveless one, that seeketh its advantage in the advantage of many. It is not the origin of the herd, but its ruin. Loving ones was it always, and creating ones, that created good and bad. Fire of love gloweth in the names of all the virtues, and fire of wrath. Many lands saw Zarathustra and many peoples. No greater power did Zarathustra find on earth than the creations of the loving ones. Good and bad are they called. Verily, a prodigy is this power of praising and blaming. Tell me, ye brethren, who will master it for me? Who will put a fetter upon the thousand necks of this animal? A thousand goals have there been hitherto, for a thousand peoples have there been. Only the fetter for the thousand necks is still lacking. There is lacking the one goal. As yet, humanity hath not a goal. But pray tell me, my brethren, if the goal of humanity be still lacking, is there not also still lacking humanity itself? Thus spake Zarathustra. Notes by Anthony M. Ludovici In this discourse, Zarathustra opens his exposition of the doctrine of relativity in morality, and declares all morality to be a mere means to power. 
Needless to say that verses 9, 10, 11, and 12 refer to the Greeks, the Persians, the Jews, and the Germans, respectively. In the penultimate verse, he makes known his discovery concerning the root of modern nihilism and indifference, i.e., that modern man has no goal, no aim, no ideals. See note A in the introduction. End of part one, chapter 15, recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Part one, chapter 16 of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche. Translated by Thomas Common. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Neighbor Love Ye crowd around your neighbor, and have fine words for it. But I say unto you, Your neighbor love is your bad love of yourselves. Ye flee unto your neighbor from yourselves, and would fain make a virtue thereof. But I fathom your unselfishness. The thou is older than the I. The thou hath been consecrated, but not yet the I. So man presseth nigh unto his neighbor. Do I advise you to neighbor love? Rather, do I advise you to neighbor flight, and to furthest love? Higher than love to your neighbor is love to the furthest and future ones. Higher still than love to men is love to things and phantoms. The phantom that runneth on before thee, my brother, is fairer than thou. Why dost thou not give unto it thy flesh and thy bones? But thou fearest, and runnest unto thy neighbor. Ye cannot endure it with yourselves, and do not love yourselves sufficiently. So ye seek to mislead your neighbor into love, and would fain gild yourselves with his error. Would that ye could not endure it with any kind of near ones, or their neighbors. Then would ye have to create your friend and his overflowing heart out of yourselves. Ye call in a witness when ye want to speak well of yourselves, and when ye have misled him to think well of you, ye also think well of yourselves. Not only doth he lie, he who speaketh contrary to his knowledge, but more so he who speaketh contrary to his ignorance. And thus speak ye of yourselves in your intercourse, and belie your neighbor with yourselves. Thus saith the fool, association with men spoileth the character, especially when one hath none. The one goeth to his neighbor because he seeketh himself, and the other because he would fain lose himself. Your bad love to yourselves maketh solitude a prison to you. The furthest ones are they who pay for your love to the near ones, and when there are but five of you together, a sixth must always die. I love not your festivals either. Too many actors found I there, and even the spectators often behaved like actors. Not the neighbor do I teach you, but the friend. Let the friend be the festival of the earth to you. 
and a foretaste of the superman i teach you the friend and his overflowing heart but one must know how to be a sponge if one would be loved by overflowing hearts i teach you the friend in whom the world standeth complete a capsule of the good the creating friend who hath always a complete world to bestow and as the world unrolled itself for him so rolleth it together again for him in rings as the growth of good through evil as the growth of purpose out of chance let the future and the furthest be thy motive of thy to-day in thy friend shalt thou love the superman as thy motive my brethren i advise you not to neighbor love i advise you to furthest love thus spake zarathustra recording by john van stan savannah georgia part one chapter seventeen of thus spake zarathustra by friedrich nietzsche translated by thomas common this librivox recording is in the public domain the way of the creating one wouldst thou go into isolation my brother wouldst thou seek the way unto thyself tarry yet a little and hearken unto me he who seeketh may easily get lost himself all isolation is wrong so say the herd and long didst thou belong to the herd the voice of the herd will still echo in thee and when thou sayest i have no longer a conscience in common with you then it will be a plaint and a pain lo that pain itself did the same conscience produce and the last gleam of that conscience still gloweth on thine affliction but thou wouldst go the way of thine affliction which is the way unto thyself then show me thine authority and thy strength to do so art thou a new strength and a new authority a first motion a self-rolling wheel canst thou also compel stars to revolve around thee alas there is so much lusting for loftiness there are so many convulsions of the ambitions show me that thou art not a lusting and ambitious one alas there are so many great thoughts that do nothing more than the bellows they inflate and make emptier than ever free dost thou call thyself thy ruling thought would i hear of and not that thou hast escaped from a yoke art thou one entitled to escape from a yoke many a one hath cast away his final worth when he hath cast away his servitude free from what what doth that matter to zarathustra clearly however shall thine eye show unto me free for what canst thou give unto thyself thy bad and thy good and set up thy will as a law over thee canst thou be judge for thyself and avenger of thy law 
terrible is aloneness with the judge and avenger of one's own law. Thus is a star projected into desert space and into the icy breath of aloneness. Today sufferest thou still from the multitude, thou individual. Today hast thou still thy courage unabated and thy hopes. But one day will the solitude weary thee. One day will thy pride yield and thy courage quail. Thou wilt one day cry, I am alone. One day wilt thou see no longer thy loftiness, and see too closely thy lowliness. Thy sublimity itself will frighten thee as a phantom. Thou wilt one day cry, All is false. There are feelings which seek to slay the lonesome one. If they do not succeed, then must they themselves die. But art thou capable of it? To be a murderer? Hast thou ever known, my brother, the word disdain? and the anguish of thy justice in being just to those that disdain thee? Thou forcest many to think differently about thee, that charge they heavily to thine account. Thou camest nigh unto them, and yet wentest past, for that they never forgive thee. Thou goest beyond them, but the higher thou risest, the smaller doth the eye of envy see thee. Most of all, however, is the flying one hated. How could ye be just unto me? Must thou say, I choose your injustice as my allotted portion? Injustice and filth cast they at the lonesome one. But, my brother... If thou wouldst be a star, thou must shine for them none the less on that account. And be on thy guard against the good and just. They would fain crucify those who devise their own virtue. They hate the lonesome ones. Be on thy guard also against holy simplicity. All is unholy to it that is not simple. Fain, likewise, would it play with the fire of the faggot and the stake. And be on thy guard also against the assaults of thy love. Too readily doth the recluse reach his hand to any one who meeteth him. To many a one mayest thou not give thy hand, but only thy paw. And I wish thy paw also to have claws. But... The worst enemy thou canst meet, wilt thou thyself always be. Thou waylayest thyself in caverns and forests, thou lonesome one. Thou goest the way to thyself, and past thyself, and thy seven devils leadeth thy way. A heretic wilt thou be to thyself, and a wizard, and a soothsayer, and a fool, and a doubter and a reprobate, and a villain. Ready must thou be to burn thyself in thine own flame. How couldst thou become new, if thou have not first become ashes? Thou lonesome one, 
thou goest the way of the creating one. A god wilt thou create for thyself out of thy seven devils. Thou lonesome one, thou goest the way of the loving one. Thou lovest thyself, and on that account despisest thou thyself, and only the loving ones despise. To create desireth the loving one, because he despiseth. What knoweth he of love, who hath not been obliged to despise just what he loved? With thy love go into thine isolation, my brother, and with thy creating. And late only will justice limp after thee. With my tears go into thine isolation, my brother. I love him who seeketh to create beyond himself, and thus succumbeth. Thus spake Zarathustra. End of Part 1, Chapter 17. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Part 1, Chapter 18 of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche. Translated by Thomas Common. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Old and Young Women Why stealest thou along so furtively in the twilight, Zarathustra? And what hidest thou so carefully under thy mantle? Is it a treasure that hath been given thee, or a child that hath been born thee? Or goest thou thyself on a thief's errand, thou friend of evil? Verily, my brother, said Zarathustra, it is a treasure that hath been given to me. It is a little truth which I carry. But it is naughty like a young child, and if I hold not its mouth it screameth too loudly. As I went on my way alone to-day at the hour when the sun declineth, there met me an old woman, and she spake thus unto my soul. Much hath Zarathustra spoken also to us women, but never spake he unto us concerning woman. And I answered her, Concerning woman, one should only talk unto men. Talk also unto me of woman, said she. I am old enough to forget it presently. And I obliged the old woman, and spake thus unto her. Everything in woman is a riddle, and everything in woman hath one solution. It is called pregnancy. Man is for woman a means. The purpose is always the child. But what is woman for man? Two different things wanteth the true man, danger and diversion. Therefore wanteth he woman as the most dangerous plaything. Man shall be trained for war, and woman for the recreation of the warrior. All else is folly. Two sweet fruits. These the warrior liketh not. Therefore liketh he woman. Bitter is even the sweetest woman. Better than man doth woman understand children, but man is more childish than woman. In the true man there is a child hidden, it wanteth to play. Up then, ye women, 
and discover the child in man a plaything let woman be pure and fine like the precious stone illumined with the virtues of a world not yet come let the beam of a star shine in your love let your hopes say may i bear the superman in your love let there be valor with your love shall ye assail him who inspireth you with fear in your love be your honor little doth woman understand otherwise about honor but let this be your honor always to love more than ye are loved and never be the second let man fear woman when she loveth then maketh she every sacrifice and everything else she regardeth as worthless let man fear woman when she hateth for man in his innermost soul is merely evil woman however is mean whom hateth woman most thus spake the iron to the lodestone i hate thee most because thou attractest but art too weak to draw unto thee the happiness of man is i will the happiness of woman is he will lo now hath the world become perfect thus thinketh every woman when she obeyeth with all her love obey must the woman and find a depth for her surface surface is woman's soul a mobile stormy film on shallow water man's soul however is deep its current gusheth in subterranean caverns woman surmiseth its force but comprehendeth it not then answered me the old woman many fine things hath zarathustra said especially for those who are young enough for them strange zarathustra knoweth little about woman and yet he is right about them doth this happen because with women nothing is impossible and now accept a little truth by way of thanks i am old enough for it swaddle it up and hold its mouth otherwise it will scream too loudly the little truth give me woman thy little truth said i and thus spake the old woman thou goest to women do not forget thy whip thus spake zarathustra notes by anthony m ludovici nietzsche's views on women have either to be loved at first sight or they become perhaps the greatest obstacle in the way of those who otherwise would be inclined to accept his philosophy women especially of course have been taught to dislike them because it has been rumored that his views are unfriendly to themselves now to my mind all this is pure misunderstanding and error german philosophers thanks to schopenhauer have earned rather a bad name for their views on women it is almost impossible for one of them to write a line on the subject however kindly he may do so without being suspected of wishing to open a crusade against the fair sex despite the fact therefore that all nietzsche's views in this respect were dictated to him by the profoundest love 
despite Zarathustra's reservation in this discourse that, quote, with women nothing that can be said is impossible, end quote. And in the face of other overwhelming evidence to the contrary, Nietzsche is universally reported to have mis en pied dans la place, where the female sex is concerned. In what is the fundamental doctrine which has given rise to so much bitterness and aversion? Merely this, that the sexes are at bottom antagonistic. That is to say, as different as blue is from yellow, and that the best possible means of rearing anything approaching a desirable race is to preserve and to foster this profound hostility. What Nietzsche strives to combat and to overthrow is the modern democratic tendency which is slowly laboring to level all things, even the sexes. His quarrel is not with women. What indeed could be more undignified? It is with those who would destroy the natural relationship between the sexes, by modifying either the one or the other with a view to making them more alike. The human world is just as dependent upon women's powers as upon men's. It is women's strongest and most valuable instincts which help to determine who are to be the fathers of the next generation. By destroying these particular instincts, that is to say, by attempting to masculinize women and to feminize men, we jeopardize the future of our people. The general democratic movement of modern times, in its frantic struggle to mitigate all differences, is now invading even the world of sex. It is against this movement that Nietzsche raises his voice. He would have woman become ever more woman, and man become ever more man. Only thus, and he is undoubtedly right, can their combined instincts lead to the excellence of humanity. Regarded in this light, all his views on woman appear not only necessary but just. See note on chapter 56, paragraph 21. It is interesting to observe that the last line of the discourse, which has so frequently been used by women as a weapon against Nietzsche's views concerning them, was suggested to Nietzsche by a woman. See Das Leben F. Nietzsche's. End of Part 1, Chapter 18 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Part 1, Chapter 19 of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche Translated by Thomas Common This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. THE BITE OF THE ADDER One day had Zarathustra fallen asleep under a fig tree, owing to the heat, with his arms over his face. And there came an adder and bit him in the neck, so that Zarathustra screamed with pain. When he had taken his arm from his face, he looked at the serpent, and then did it recognize the eyes of Zarathustra, wriggled awkwardly and tried to get away. Not at all, said Zarathustra. As yet hast thou not received my thanks. Thou hast awakened me in time. My journey is yet long. Thy journey is short, said the adder sadly. My poison is fatal. Zarathustra smiled. 
when did ever a dragon die of a serpent's poison said he but take thy poison back thou art not rich enough to present it to me then fell the adder again on his neck and licked his wound when zarathustra once told this to his disciples they asked him and what o zarathustra is the moral of thy story and zarathustra answered them thus the destroyer of morality the good and just call me my story is immoral when however ye have an enemy then return him not good for evil for that would abash him but prove that he hath done something good to you and rather be angry than abash any one and when ye are cursed it pleaseth me not that ye should then desire to bless rather curse a little also and should a great injustice befall you then do quickly five small ones besides hideous to behold is he on whom injustice presseth alone did ye ever know this shared injustice is half justice and he who can bear it shall take the injustice upon himself a small revenge is humaner than no revenge at all and if the punishment be not also a right and an honour to the transgressor i do not like your punishing nobler is it to own oneself in the wrong than to establish one's right especially if one be in the right only one must be rich enough to do so i do not like your cold justice out of the eye of your judges there always glanceth the executioner and his cold steel tell me where find we justice which is love with seeing eyes devise me then the love which not only beareth all punishment but also all guilt devise me then the justice which acquitteth every one except the judge and would ye hear this likewise to him who seeketh to be just from the heart even the lie becometh philanthropy but how could i be just from the heart how can i give every one his own let this be enough for me i give unto every one mine own finally my brethren guard against doing wrong to any anchorite how could an anchorite forget how could he requite like a deep well is an anchorite easy is it to throw in a stone if it should sink to the bottom however tell me who will bring it out again guard against injuring the anchorite if ye have done so however well then kill him also thus spake zarathustra end of part one chapter nineteen recording by john van stan savannah georgia Part One, Chapter Twenty of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche, translated by Thomas Common. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Child and Marriage. 
I have a question for thee alone, my brother. Like a sounding lead, cast I this question into thy soul, that I may know its depth. Thou art young, and desirous child in marriage. But I ask thee, art thou a man entitled to desire a child? Art thou the victorious one, the self-conqueror, the ruler of thy passions, the master of thy virtues? Thus do I ask thee. Or doth the animal speak in thy wish, and necessity, or isolation, or discord in thee? I would have thy victory and freedom long for a child. Living monuments shalt thou build to thy victory and emancipation. Beyond thyself shalt thou build. But first of all must thou be built thyself, rectangular in body and soul. Not only onward shalt thou propagate thyself, but upward. For that purpose may the garden of marriage help thee. A higher body shalt thou create. A first movement, a spontaneously rolling wheel, a creating one, shalt thou create. Marriage, so call I the will of the twain to create the one that is more than those who created it. The reverence for one another as those exercising such a will call I marriage. Let this be the significance and the truth of thy marriage. But that which the many too many call marriage, those superfluous ones, ha, what shall I call it? Uh, the poverty of soul in the twain, ha, the filth of soul in the twain, ah, the pitiable self-complacency in the twain. Marriage they call it all, and they say their marriages are made in heaven. Well, I do not like it that heaven of the superfluous. No, I do not like them, those animals tangled in the heavenly toils. Far from me also be the god who limpeth thither to bless what he hath not matched. <sighs> Laugh not at such marriages. What child hath not had reason to weep over its parents? Worthy did this man seem, and ripe for the meaning of the earth, but when I saw his wife, the earth seemed to me a home for madcaps. Yea, I would that the earth shook with convulsions when a saint and a goose mate with one another. This one went forth in quest of truth as a hero, and at last got for himself a small decked-up lie. His marriage he calleth it. That one was reserved in intercourse, and chose choicely. But one time he spoilt his company for all time. His marriage he calleth it. Another sought a handmaid with the virtues of an angel. But all at once he became the handmaid of a woman, and now would he need also to become an angel. Careful have I found all buyers and all of them have astute eyes. But even the astutest of them buyeth his wife in a sack. Many short follies! That is called love by you. 
and your marriage putteth an end to many short follies with one long stupidity. Your love to woman, and woman's love to man. Ah, would that it were sympathy for suffering and veiled deities. But generally, two animals alight on one another. But even your best love is only an enraptured simile and a painful ardor. It is a torch to light you to loftier paths. Beyond yourselves shall ye love some day. Then learn, first of all, to love. And on that account ye had to drink the bitter cup of your love. Bitterness is in the cup even of the best love. Thus doth it cause longing for the superman. Thus doth it cause thirst in thee, the creating one. Thirst in the creating one, arrow and longing for the superman. Tell me, my brother, is this thy will to marriage? Holy call I such a will, and such a marriage. Thus spake Zarathustra. End of part one, chapter twenty. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Part one, chapter twenty one of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche. Translated by Thomas Common. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Voluntary Death. Many die too late, and some die too early. Yet strange soundeth the precept, die at the right time. Die at the right time. So teacheth Zarathustra. To be sure, he who never liveth at the right time, how could he ever die at the right time? Would that he might never be born. Thus do I advise the superfluous ones. But even the superfluous ones make much ado about their death and even the hollowest nut wanteth to be cracked. Every one regardeth dying as a great matter, but as yet death is not a festival. Not yet have people learned to inaugurate the finest festivals. The consummating death I show unto you, which becometh a stimulus and promise to the living. His death dieth the consummating one triumphantly, surrounded by hoping and promising ones. Thus should one learn to die, and there should be no festival at which such a dying one doth not consecrate the oaths of the living. Thus, to die is best. The next best, however, is to die in battle, and sacrifice a great soul. But to the fighter equally hateful as to the victor, is your grinning death which stealeth nigh like a thief, and yet cometh as master. My death, praise I unto you, the voluntary death, which cometh unto me because I want it. And when shall I want it? He that hath a goal and an heir wanteth death at the right time for the goal and the heir and out of reverence for the goal and the air, he will hang up no more withered wreaths in the sanctuary of life. Verily, not the rope-makers will I resemble, 
they lengthen out their cord and thereby go ever backward many a one also waxeth too old for his truths and triumphs a toothless mouth hath no longer the right to every truth and whoever wanteth to have fame must take leave of honour betimes and practise the difficult art of going at the right time one must discontinue being feasted upon when one tasteth best that is known by those who want to be long loved sour apples are there no doubt whose lot is to wait until the last day of autumn and at the same time they become ripe yellow and shriveled in some ageth the heart first and in others the spirit and some are hoary in youth but the late young keep long young to many men life is a failure a poison worm gnaweth at their heart then let them see to it that their dying is all the more a success many never become sweet they rot even in the summer it is cowardice that holdeth them fast to their branches far too many live and far too long hang they on their branches would that a storm came and shook all this rottenness and worm-eatenness from the tree would that there came preachers of speedy death those would be the appropriate storms and agitators of the trees of life but i hear only slow death preached and patience with all that is earthly huh. ye preach patience with what is earthly this earthly is it that hath too much patience with you ye blasphemers verily too early died that hebrew whom the preachers of slow death honour and the many hath it proved a calamity that he died too early as yet had he known only tears and the melancholy of the hebrews together with the hatred of the good and just the hebrew jesus then was he seized with the longing for death had he but remained in the wilderness and far from the good and just then perhaps would he have learned to live and love the earth and laughter also believe it my brethren he died too early he himself would have disavowed this doctrine had he attained to my age noble enough was he to disavow but he was still immature immaturely loveth the youth and immaturely also hateth he man and earth confined and awkward are still his soul and the wings of his spirit but in man there is more of the child than in the youth and less of melancholy better understandeth he about life and death free for death and free in death a holy naysayer when there is no longer time for yea thus understandeth he about death and life that your dying may not be a reproach to man and the earth my friends that do i solicit from the honey of your soul in your dying shall your spirit and your virtue still shine like an evening afterglow around the earth otherwise your dying hath been unsatisfactory 
thus will I die myself, that ye friends may love the earth more for my sake. And earth will I again become, to have rest in her that bore me. Verily, a goal had Zarathustra. He threw his ball. Now be ye friends the heirs of my goal. To you throw I the golden ball. Best of all do I see you, my friends, throw the golden ball. And so tarry I still a little while on the earth. Pardon me for it. Thus spake Zarathustra. Notes by Anthony M. Ludovici in regard to this discourse, I should only like to point out that Nietzsche had a particular aversion to the word suicide, self-murder. He disliked the evil it suggested, and in rechristening the act voluntary death, in other words, the death that comes from no other hand than one's own, he was desirous of elevating it to the position it held in classical antiquity. See aphorism 36 in The Twilight of the Idols. End of part one, chapter twenty one. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Part one, chapter twenty two of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche. Translated by Thomas Common. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Bestowing Virtue. One. When Zarathustra had taken leave of the town to which his heart was attached, the name of which is the Pied Cow. There followed him many people who called themselves his disciples, and kept him company. Thus came they to a crossroad. Then Zarathustra told them that he now wanted to go alone, for he was fond of going alone. His disciples, however, presented him at his departure with a staff, on the golden handle of which a serpent twined round the sun. Zarathustra rejoiced on account of the staff, and supported himself thereon. Then spake he thus to his disciples, Tell me, pray, how came gold to the highest value? Because it is uncommon, and unprofiting, and beaming, and soft in luster, it always bestoweth itself. Only as image of the highest virtue came gold to the highest value. Gold-like beameth the glance of the bestower. Gold-luster maketh peace between moon and sun. Uncommon is the highest virtue, and unprofiting, beaming is it, and soft of luster, a bestowing virtue is the highest virtue. Verily, I divine you well, my disciples. Ye strive like me for the bestowing virtue. What should ye have in common with cats and wolves? It is your thirst to become sacrifices and gifts yourselves. And therefore have ye the thirst to accumulate all riches in your soul. Insatiably striveth your soul for treasures and jewels, because your virtue is insatiable in desiring to bestow. Yet... Constrain all things to flow toward you and into you, so that they shall flow back again out of your fountain as the gifts of your love. Verily, 
an appropriator of all values, must such bestowing love become. But, healthy and holy, call I this selfishness. Another selfishness is there, in all too poor and hungry kind, which would always steal. The selfishness of the sick, the sickly selfishness. With the eye of the thief it looketh upon all that is lustrous. With the craving of hunger it measureth him who hath abundance, and never doth it prowl round the tables of bestowers. Sickness speaketh in such craving, an invisible degeneration of a sickly body speaketh the larcenous craving of this selfishness. Tell me, my brother, what do we think bad, and worst of all, is it not degeneration? And we always suspect degeneration when the bestowing soul is lacking. Upward goeth our course from genera on to supergenera, but a horror to us is the degenerating sense which saith, All for myself. Upward soareth our sense. Thus is it a simile of our body, a simile of an elevation. Such similes of elevations are the names of the virtues. Thus goeth the body through history, a becomer and fighter. And the spirit, what is it to the body? Its fights and victories herald, its companion and echo. Similes are all names of good and evil. They do not speak out, they only hint. A fool who seeketh knowledge from them. Give heed, my brethren, to every hour when your spirit would speak in similes. There is the origin of your virtue. Elevated is then your body and raised up. With its delight enraptureth it the spirit, so that it becometh creator and valuer and lover and everything's benefactor. When your heart overfloweth abroad and full like the river, a blessing and a danger to the lowlanders. There is the origin of your virtue. When ye are exalted above praise and blame, and your will would command all things as a loving one's will, there is the origin of your virtue. When ye despise pleasant things, and the effeminate couch, and cannot couch far enough from the effeminate, there is the origin of your virtue. When ye are willers of one will, and when that change of every need is needful to you, there is the origin of your virtue. Verily, a new good and evil is it. Verily, a new deep murmuring and the voice of a new fountain. Power is it, this new virtue. A ruling thought is it, and around it a subtle soul, a golden sun, with the serpent of knowledge around it. 2. Here paused Zarathustra a while, and looked lovingly on his disciples. Then he continued to speak thus, and his voice had changed. Remain true to the earth, my brethren, 
with the power of your virtue. Let your bestowing love and your knowledge be devoted to be the meaning of the earth. Thus do I pray and conjure you. Let it not fly away from the earthly and beat against eternal walls with its wings. Ah, there hath always been so much flown away virtue. Lead, like me, the flown away virtue back to earth, yea, back to body and life, that it may give to the earth its meaning, a human meaning. A hundred times hitherto hath spirit as well as virtue flown away and blundered. Alas, in our body dwelleth still all this delusion and blundering. Body and will hath it there become. A hundred times hitherto hath spirit as well as virtue attempted and erred. Yea, an attempt hath man been. Alas, much ignorance and error hath become embodied in us. Not only the rationality of millenniums, also their madness breaketh out in us. Dangerous is it to be an heir. Still, fight we step by step with the giant chance. And over all mankind hath hitherto ruled nonsense, the lack of sense. Let your spirit and your virtue be devoted to the sense of the earth, my brethren. Let the value of everything be determined anew by you. Therefore shall ye be fighters. Therefore shall ye be creators. Intelligently doth the body purify itself. Attempting with intelligence, it exalteth itself. To the discerners all impulses sanctify themselves. To the exalted the soul becometh joyful. Physician, heal thyself. Then wilt thou also heal thy patient. Let it be his best cure to see with his eyes him who maketh himself whole. A thousand paths are there which have never yet been trodden. A thousand salubrities and hidden islands of life. Unexhausted and undiscovered is still man and man's world. Awaken and hearken, ye lonesome ones. From the future come winds with stealthy pinions, and to fine ears good tidings are proclaimed. Ye lonesome ones of today, ye seceding ones. Ye shall one day be a people. Out of you who have chosen yourselves shall a chosen people arise, and out of it the Superman. Verily, a place of healing shall the earth become, and already is a new odor diffused around it, a salvation-bringing odor, and a new hope. 3. When Zarathustra had spoken these words, he paused, like one who had not said his last word, and long did he balance the staff doubtfully in his hand. At last he spake thus, and his voice had changed. I now go alone, my disciples. Ye also now go away, 
and alone, so will I have it. Verily, I advise you, depart from me and guard yourselves against Zarathustra, and better still, be ashamed of him. Perhaps he hath deceived you. The man of knowledge must be able not only to love his enemies, but also to hate his friends. One requiteth a teacher badly if one remain merely a scholar. And why will ye not pluck at my wreath? Ye venerate me, but what if your veneration should some day collapse? Take heed, lest a statue crush you. Ye say, ye believe in Zarathustra. But of what account is Zarathustra? Ye are my believers. But of what account are all believers? Ye had not yet sought yourselves. Then did ye find me. So do all believers. Therefore, all belief is of so little account. Now do I bid you lose me and find yourselves, and only when ye have all denied me will I return unto you. Verily, with other eyes, my brethren, shall I then seek my lost ones, with another love shall I then love you. And once again shall ye have become friends unto me, and children of one hope. Then will I be with you for the third time to celebrate the great noontide with you. And it is the great noontide, when man is in the middle of his course between animal and superman, and celebrateth his advance to the evening as his highest hope, for it is the advance to a new morning. At such time will the down-goer bless himself, that he should be an over-goer, and the sun of his knowledge will be at noontide. Dead are all the gods. Now do we desire the superman to live. Let this be our final will at the great noontide. Thus spake Zarathustra. Notes by Anthony M. Ludovici An important aspect of Nietzsche's philosophy is brought to light in this discourse. His teaching, as is well known, places the Aristotelian man of spirit above all others in the natural divisions of man. The man with overflowing strength, both of mind and body, who must discharge this strength or perish, is the Nietzschean ideal. To such a man, giving from his overflow becomes a necessity, bestowing develops into a means of existence, and this is the only giving, the only charity that Nietzsche recognizes. In paragraph three of the Discourse, we read Zarathustra's healthy exhortation to his disciples to become independent thinkers and to find themselves before they learn any more from him. See notes on chapters 56, paragraph 5, and 73, paragraphs 10 and 11. End of Part 1, Chapter 22, Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Part 2, Chapter 23 of Thus Spake Zarathustra by Friedrich Nietzsche Translated by Thomas Common 
This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Thus spake Zarathustra, second part. Quote, and only when ye have all denied me will I return unto you. Verily, with other eyes, my brethren, shall I then seek my lost ones. With another love shall I then love you. End quote. Zarathustra, part one, the bestowing virtue. Chapter twenty three. The child with the mirror. After this, Zarathustra returned again into the mountains to the solitude of his cave, and withdrew himself from men, waiting like a sower who hath scattered his seed. His soul, however, became impatient and full of longing for those whom he loved, because he had still much to give them. For this is the hardest of all, to close the open hand out of love, and keep modest as a giver. Thus passed with the lonesome one months and years. His wisdom, meanwhile, increased and caused him pain by its abundance. One morning, however, he awoke ere the rosy dawn, and, having meditated long on his couch, at last spake thus to his heart. Why did I startle in my dream so that I awoke? Did not a child come to me carrying a mirror? O Zarathustra, said the child unto me, look at thyself in the mirror. But when I looked into the mirror I shrieked, and my heart throbbed, for not myself did I see therein, but a devil's grimace and derision. Verily, all too well do I understand the dream's portent and monition. My doctrine is in danger. Tares want to be called wheat. Mine enemies have grown powerful, and have disfigured the likeness of my doctrine, so that my dearest ones have to blush for the gifts that I gave them. Lost are my friends. The hour hath come for me to seek my lost ones. With these words Zarathustra started up, not, however, like a person in anguish seeking relief, but rather like a seer and a singer whom the spirit inspireth. With amazement did his eagle and serpent gaze upon him, for a coming bliss overspread his countenance like the rosy dawn. "'What hath happened unto me, my animals?' said Zarathustra. "'Am I not transformed? Hath not bliss come unto me like a whirlwind?' Foolish is my happiness, and foolish things will it speak. It is still too young, so have patience with it. Wounded am I by my happiness. All sufferers shall be physicians unto me. To my friends can I again go down, and also to mine enemies. Zarathustra can again speak and bestow, and show his best love to his loved ones. My impatient love overfloweth in streams, down towards sunrise and sunset. Out of silent mountains and storms of affliction rusheth my soul into the valleys. Too long have I longed and looked into the distance. Too long hath solitude possessed me. Thus have I unlearned to keep silence. Utterance have I become altogether, and the brawling of a brook from high rocks, 
downward into the valleys will I hurl my speech. And let the stream of my love sweep into unfrequented channels. How should a stream not finally find its way to the sea? Forsooth, there is a lake in me, sequestered and self-sufficing. But the stream of my love beareth this along with it down to the sea. New paths do I tread. A new speech cometh unto me. Tired have I become, like all creators, of the old tongues. No longer will my spirit walk on worn-out souls. Too slowly runneth all speaking for me. Into thy chariot, O storm, do I leap, and even thee will I whip with my spite. Like a cry and a huzzah will I traverse wide seas, till I find the happy isles where my friends sojourn, and mine enemies amongst them. How I now love every one unto whom I may but speak. Even mine enemies pertain to my bliss. And when I want to mount my wildest horse, then doth my spear always help me up best. It is my foot's ever-ready servant, the spear which I hurl at mine enemies. How grateful am I to mine enemies that I may at last hurl it! Too great hath been the tension of my cloud. Twixt laughters of lightnings will I cast hail showers into the depths. Violently will my breast then heave. Violently will it blow its storm over the mountains. Thus cometh its assuagement. Verily, like a storm cometh my happiness and my freedom. But mine enemies shall think that the evil one roareth over their heads. Yea, ye also, my friends, will be alarmed by my wild wisdom. And perhaps ye will flee therefrom along with mine enemies. Ah, that I knew how to lure you back with shepherd's flutes. Ah, that my lioness wisdom would learn to roar softly. And much have we already learned with one another. My wild wisdom became pregnant on the lonesome mountains. On the rough stones did she bear the youngest of her young. Now runneth she foolishly in the arid wilderness, and seeketh, and seeketh, the soft sward, mine old wild wisdom. On the soft sward of your hearts, my friends, on your love, would she fain couch her dearest ones? Thus spake Zarathustra. Notes by Anthony M. Ludovici Nietzsche tells us here, in a poetical form, how deeply grieved he was by the manifold misinterpretations and misunderstandings which were becoming rife concerning his publications. He does not recognize himself in the mirror of public opinion, and recoils, terrified, from the distorted reflection of his features. In verse 20, he gives us a hint which it were well not to pass over too lightly. For, in the introduction to The Genealogy of Morals, written in 1887, he finds it necessary to refer to the matter again, and with greater precision. The point is this that a creator of new values meets with his surest and strongest obstacles in the very spirit of the language which is at his disposal. 
words like all other manifestations of an evolving race are stamped with the values that have long been paramount in that race now the original thinker who finds himself compelled to use the current speech of his country in order to impart new and hitherto untried views to his fellows imposes a task upon the natural means of communication which it is totally unfitted to perform hence the obscurities and prolixities which are so frequently met with in the writings of original thinkers in the dawn of day nietzsche actually cautions young writers against the danger of allowing their thoughts to be moulded by the words at their disposal end of part two chapter twenty three recording by john van stan savannah georgia everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish that savory tartar sauce that melty cheese that pillowy bun yeah you get it every time and if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.